Let me start us in prayer tonight. Father, um, we're so grateful for what you're teaching us from your word. We're so grateful um, as we study the redemptive history and the gospel narrative, Father, what you're teaching us about, about you, what you're teaching us about ourselves, and what you're teaching us about Jesus. Tonight, I do pray um, that you will stir our hearts, enlighten us to the things you want us to understand, uh, and we do pray for deep understanding tonight, and I do just pray that every word that comes out of my mouth is one um, that you would have me say, Father. Bless our time together, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever hoped to go home? Okay, maybe you were at a camp as a teenager, and you just, you hoped to go home. Maybe you were at an in-law's house over Christmas. No, I didn't mean that to be funny. I didn't mean that to be a joke. Um, and you just have this moment where you feel like, like, I really hope for home. I really want to go home. And as I thought about this lesson this week, I tried to put myself into the shoes of the Israelites in exile. And I, I started thinking about our time in Ethiopia. So our family moved to Ethiopia for a couple of years. And because we were only there a couple of years, it was really easy to, to maintain my American identity. Like I didn't struggle with that. I, I'm very much set in my American identity. Um, and I integrated with the culture as much as I needed to, you know, learning as much language as I could and learning what their values are, what their kind of hidden rules of culture are, and trying to do things the way that, that you would um, living in Ethiopia. But again, I was, I was able to come back home and, and not miss a beat um, with, my, with my identity as an American. But I imagine if I'd been there for 70 years how different that would have been. If I had been there for 70 years, I would be deeply integrated into the culture, into the language. Um, and then if my children had only ever grown up in Ethiopia, well, their identity would not be as an American. Their identity would be as an Ethiopian, right? Um, so living in a different culture is unfamiliar. The values are different. Something as simple as going to the grocery store for me personally was just such a challenge. And I remember when we came home, the feeling of relief when we got off of the plane and we stepped into the airport and we saw a Five Guys hamburger. <laughs> I, like, it was just such a feeling of relief. And then we go to baggage claim and there is our family waiting to welcome us. Um, so yeah, I've just, I was thinking about that as I thought about how it must have felt to be an Israelite living in a foreign country, forced into exile for 70 years. And so tonight, that's what we're going to explore. We're moving into the temple period and the Persian Empire. So ba Persia has defeated Babylonian, Babylon. Babylon I want you to pull out your timeline. We're gonna look at that in just a moment, but you can already start kind of looking at where we are on the timeline. And I also want to look at a couple of maps. This first one is just to remind you of the journey. This is a 1,000 mile journey on foot from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then this, this slide just shows you the Babylonian kingdom, of course, defeated by Persia. And then you can see the large influence that the Persian kingdom is compared to the Babylonian kingdom. And so we're here today. So our bot, let, let me go to the next slide, sorry. Just to remind you of where we are in the scripture, um, we are in post-exilic historical and prophetic books. The books of history that we're in are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Tonight we'll be talking about the first part of Ezra. The instructional books or prophetical books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And tonight Haggai and Zechariah uh, is what we'll be talking about. And then next time Bob will talk about Malachi. Our bottom line for tonight 
the return of the exiles to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple led God's people to a place of readiness for Christ and the restoration that will come through him. So tonight we're going to discuss the return of a remnant of Israelites to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, and moving toward restoration back into the covenant, and how all of this contributes to the redemptive story. So Israel has gone from two million strong nation, a two million strong nation living in the promised land to a weak people living in exile. And remember the promise to Abraham that God would make him and his descendants a great nation who would bless all the other nations. And yet here we are. The Northern kingdom is no more. They've been swallowed up by Assyria. And the southern kingdom, Judah, is living in exile. And it's critical to God's plan of salvation that the people of Israel remain a nation and a people. And they're barely hanging on. So there are three different ways that we see these three enemies of Israel in the way that they handle the Israelites as a conquered people. So the first one is the Assyrians. They, they either destroy you or breed you out of existence. They assimilate you until you're no longer a people. Did we hear anything else about the northern kingdom after Assyria defeated them? Not really. No, we, we really didn't. Um, because they're no longer Israelites, they're Samaritans. And by the way, that's why there's so much tension between the Jews and the Samaritans in the New Testament because the Jews accuse them of not worshiping God in the right place and not worshiping God the right way. Then we have the Babylonians. They're gonna, they're gonna conquer you culturally. They're gonna show you how much better their culture is and they're gonna change your name and they're gonna change, change your spiritual practices. And then what we'll learn tonight with the Persians is that everyone can have their own gods. They can go back to their lands. They can rebuild their temples. You're still under their authority. You're still under their crown, but they're polytheistic. So they like having a lot of gods on their side. So the God of Israel is just one more God that might help them succeed as a kingdom. So the exiles from Judah are in now Persia, and all they have is the hope that God gave them in the book of Jeremiah. And I want to read Jeremiah 29. Now, on your table, if you guys will pass around the document that has Jeremiah 29 on it, there should be one for each of you. And as I read, I'm going to start in verse 4. But as I read, I want you to circle anything that stands out to you. Okay? Circle anything that stands out to you. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. What did you circle? 
Embrace it. Mm-hmm. Flourish here. Yep, I've got a purpose for you. That's right. Good. Their captors' welfare will result in their welfare. Very good, sorry. I'm getting tongue-tied. Anything else stand out to you? Multiply. 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 It says, uh, what does it say right after that, Carl? Do not dwindle away. Do not dwindle away. God needed them to stay a, a nation, right? And the other thing I sent. I sent, Yeah. Yeah, very good. Anything else? Do not listen to the false. Don't listen to the false prophets. Mm-hmm. I, have not I have not sent them. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about prophecy tonight too. So God is working. He stirs the heart of a foreign king, and he stirs the heart of a remnant of his people, about 50,000. And he gives them the courage to travel the 1,000-mile journey to a destroyed Jerusalem. It'd be much easier to stay in Persia, but there's a remnant that want to go home. So we're going to turn to our first table exercise now. You will see some cards on your table. I'm going to give you about five to seven minutes to review the events in this week's lesson Um, And put these cards in chronological order. So you'll see them in the middle of your table. Okay. I'm going to have table six share the order of the cards. It looks right to me. Okay. Go ahead, Corinne. Is this on? Okay, it's on. Uh, King Cyrus defeats Babylon in 539 B.C. Uh, first group of Israelites return to Israelum, I- Jerusalem, not Israel, uh, in 538. The altar is rebuilt and sacrifices offered. Opposition causes rebuilding to come to a halt for 16 years. Darius becomes king of Persia. God calls two prophets to encourage the people to keep rebuilding the temple. Who are they? Haggai and Zechariah temple completed in 516 and Passover celebrated for the first time post-exile. Very good. Very good. Nice job. Okay. So it is very well documented in Ezra 1 who went back, what they took with them. They were even able to take back the things that King Nebuchadnezzar um, stole from the temple. King Cyrus even gave them those items to bring back to Jerusalem. So they return, and I I imagine it to be a heartbreaking moment when they see um, the ruin of Jerusalem. So they first build an altar and offer sacrifices. And this is significant because they haven't been able to do that living as exiles. They haven't been able to uh, make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people in 70 years. Then they get started building the temple. And five to six years later, they face some opponents and building stops. Now, at first, these these opponents offer to help, but Zerubbabel refuses their help. What if Zerubbabel had said, sure, the more the merrier, join us. There's a reason that Zerubbabel said no. He was right because to accept the help of the people living in the land would mean that they might be corrupted by pagan practices and the purity of them as God's people had to be a priority. So that's why Zerubbabel did that. Have you ever heard of the word syncretism? Basically, it looks like worshiping God and other gods. It's the fusion of different beliefs different forms of of practices. It's a plus one. I've heard it described as a plus one. Jesus plus my works or God plus other gods. And this is something that the Israelites have struggled with 
ever since they've been in existence. And to be honest, it can, it can be something that we still struggle with today. So 16 to 18 years later, the temple is still not finished. The Israelites have turned to building their own homes, which seems reasonable, right? Um, but the prophet Haggai calls them out for their paneled houses, which by the way, would mean that their houses were built with, with cedar covering, which would be a sign of prosperity because wood is very scarce in that area. So Haggai confronts them for being preoccupied with building their own homes and forgetting about building God's house. But then they're inspired to build again. Inspired to build again. And Zechariah also encourages them to continue building as well as sharing prophecies with them about the hope of the restoration that God will bring. And we're gonna talk more about that in just a moment. But what we wanna do now is we wanna look at the characters. We wanna observe what we learn about the characters in the story. So our next table exercise, we have some scripture there for you, you can pass out. Um, And I want you to make a list of what you learn about Zerubbabel and Jeshua or Joshua and their roles. So look at those scripture. You can pass them out. Um, share, like, kind of share who's sh- looking at, at the different scriptures. And then the second thing I want you to think about is why might it be significant for these two men to lead the people in rebuilding the temple? Okay, I'm making y'all work too hard tonight, aren't I? We're kind of tired tonight. Why are we so tired? We're kind of, I'm tired. I guess I don't want to project onto you guys. I feel kind of tired. I think I didn't drink enough caffeine today. Okay. Well, I thought I would list these things, but now I think that might be a little difficult, but I'll try. Okay. What did you learn about Zerubbabel? He was a leader. Son of the governor. God's servant. Chosen by God. Thank you, Kara. Chosen by God. Obedient. Obedient. Nice. Okay. Feared God. Feared God. Mm-hmm. The Lord spoke to him. Mm-hmm. He hel- he helped rebuild the altar. He laid the foundation of the temple and the final stone as well. Am I right spelling everything right? Yep. Woohoo, I'm gonna roll. <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. Okay, anything else? He was in the line of, of Jesus or the line of Judah. Yep. Smart as an engineer. <laughs> What'd you say, Bill? God will make him like a signet ring. God will make him like a signet ring. Does anybody um, have any thoughts on that? Like, is it there's a verse in Jeremiah that is speaking to the last king that was on the throne as they were taken into captivity, and it says. As surely as I live, says the Lord, I will abandon you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would pull you off. And now we see that Zerubbabel is being called the signet ring. So it's like, uh, it's like authority is given back to the Davidic kingdom. Good, good. Anything else? We'll say that again, Liam. Passionate, Passionate to, fo- to follow God's laws. Very good. Carl, were you going to say something? The yeah, the prophets acknowledge him. Anything else? Let's just pretend like that says acknowledge. 
Is that going to drive anybody crazy? Okay, okay. I'll do spell check or whatever it's called. Okay. I wouldn't have left y'all hanging like that. Okay. What happened? Yeah. That's good. Yeah, he stood up to the opponents. Okay. This is too hard. (laughs) All right, what do we learn about Joshua? He was a priest. What do we learn about Joshua? Okay. What else do we learn about Joshua? Son of the high priest. He's a descendant of Aaron, right? Mm-hmm. So why might these two men be significant to the story? Mm-hmm. One represents the, the king, one represents the priest. One is from the line of De, the Davidic kingdom, and one is from the, um, the, the Aaronic, maybe Aaron, um, the, the priest through the, through the tribe of, the, of Levites. Yeah, exactly. Significant that it's these two men. Um, in Zechariah 4, we read about one of the visions of Zechariah about two olive trees, and they represent um, Zerubbabel and Joshua and how God has anointed them to work together, kind of like Moses and Aaron, right? The leader and the priest working together to lead the people. Uh, and then in chapter 6, he has a vision of these two offices merging and there being a priestly king that comes in the future. And of course, we know that that's Jesus. Um, So these two roles are shadowing Jesus and how he is our king and our high priest. So I want to talk a little bit more about these offices, and I want to add in prophet too, because we can't forget Haggai and Zechariah. So we have these three offices that work together. Um, We have Haggai and Zechariah's prophets, we have Zerubbabel representing the king. A king. He, he wasn't made king, but he is the leader of the people, and he's in the Davidic kingdom, the line of the Davidic kingdom. And then we have Joshua as priest. So let's look at the role of a king. What is the role of a king? Well, we know that a king administers justice in the land. He's in the place of power and authority. He holds people to the law, but he doesn't create the law. He doesn't write the law. He doesn't change the law. God establishes the law. Um, and that's, not like, that's very different than other kings and the nations around them, right? Because those kings write the law, change the law. They do whatever they want to do, whatever fits, you know, fits their desires. Um, also, the king of Israel, um, their weaknesses and shortcomings are documented, right? We read. We can read plenty about their failures, they're supposed to be servants. They serve God, but they aren't deity them, themselves. A lot of um, other nations, kings, they would even think that they could become deity. So this is the role of the king. Let's look at the role of a priest. So the priest is ordained by God to offer sacrifices and represent the people to God and God to the people. The priest prays on behalf of the people. The priests teach the law and they determine whether a person is healthy or sick. And that's all about the clean and unclean um, status that a person has in order to be able to go into the temple to worship. And then the role of the prophet. A prophet is on the margins of power. They have no They have no authority. They have authority, but no power. So they have influence, but they don't have authority. Words are their weapons. They're God's messengers. God speaks through them and to them in in a wide variety of ways. Right? The wisdom that they share is not their own. They're sharing the wisdom that God has given them. They're appointed. By God, not a king, not a human. 
Um, they're to teach God's people how to live in covenant with him. So they're CEOs, they're covenant enforcement officers. They, they lead the people in how to live in covenant relationship with God. And they speak to all people. This isn't a secret message that only the king gets to hear, or only the leaders get to hear. They speak to all people, which is important because this gives everyone dignity and the ability to do what's right because um, they know what the message from God is. And they're always bringing the future to the present through the prophecies that they share. They're always trying to get people in the present to live a future reality, right? And here's what's really cool to me. During this time in the redemptive history, these three offices are working like pretty, they're working pretty collaboratively together, aren't they? And we don't always see that. We haven't always seen that in the redemptive history. We've seen corruption of kings, corruption of, you know, of priests. So that, I think that's pretty cool. Okay, so we've talked about the return. We've talked about the characters. So let's turn to the rebuilding. Why is it important to rebuild the temple? What's at stake? What's the big deal with rebuilding the temple? So let's think back to the tabernacle. The big deal was that God wanted to dwell with his people. And the tabernacle and later the temple is where people offered sacrifices. So it's where God's glory lived and where the people through sacrifice were made clean and forgiven. So there's two reasons. First, the temple is the place of God's glory. It's the, it's the place where his name um, is made famous. It's, it's where his name is, it receives glory. And number two, it's the place of sacrifice and where God's worshiped. Haggai 1.8 says, Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So God is honored when we put him first. And building him a house where his name will be glorified is critical to the spiritual lives of the Israelites. He takes pleasure when we offer sacrifices to him. So it's really important that the sacri sacrificial system is reinstated. Now, of course, this side of the work of Jesus, we know that we are God's temple. In the Old Testament, we see a, a temple, and that word in the Hebrew means the palace of God as king. And then in the New Testament, we have the church. And that the church means all Christians across the whole world, okay? So after the work of Jesus, the church is a people. The church is a people. God dwells in his people, not in a building. And we don't need a temple to perform sacrifices because Jesus is the sacrifice. And the same way that God used the Israelites to rebuild his temple in the Old Testament. Today, he uses us to build the church. He uses us to build the church. So your next table exercise. Oh, let me, let me say this first, sorry. They were on a mission to rebuild the temple. This is, this is our mission as believers after the work of Christ. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have given all authority in heaven and on earth. I've been given all authority on heaven, in heaven. I'm sorry, I'm having such a hard time talking tonight. Sorry, let me start over. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I want you to talk for just a few minutes on how is building a church building so much easier than building a people into a Christian community? And how might we as believers build the church? Spend, spend maybe about seven minutes talking about this. This is kind of our application. 
look at this as the application for tonight. And I did switch the exercises. You may notice we've gone to four. If we have time, we'll go back to three. If we don't, that's okay. Okay. What were some of the things you discussed at your table? And I'll try to repeat it so that we capture it on audio. What are some of the more significant things that you discussed at your table? The church is not a building. It's the people. Yep. Building a church is, is like uh, training a dog. It's easy. Building, building people is like trying to train a cat. Yeah, it's hard to... <laughs> people are a little more difficult to manage, right? A building doesn't sin. A building doesn't sin. <laughs> That's true. Well, I don't know. We have to get that. We had to get a new HVA system, I think, here recently. When you're building a building, you discard broken pieces. Oh, you discard broken pieces when you're building a building. Okay. Yeah, when you're building a church, you bring in the broken, right? Yeah. That's right. That's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, Carrie. Um, Wade said, you know, when, when you are um, building a building, you have a set of materials. When right? you're building a building, you have a set of materials. With people, you know, with people, you get a kind of random collection. And you have with to people, make it grow together. you have a random collection. You have to make it grow together. Kind of like we say in groups, like you're probably going to have a cousin Eddie. <laughs> and your job is to love cousin Eddie, right? Okay. You're taking physical product and making something you can see. You're building a Christian community. You're working on shaping hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Spiritual hearts of people and growing that. Yeah. Yeah. With community drive that makes it self-known, but you can see. You can't see it. So when you're building a building, you're taking materials and you're you're using that to build the building. But with people, you're you're shape you're you're ministering to their hearts. It's very different, very different. Dan. Building is a temporary commitment and uh, building the church is a persistent like, Yeah. Decision. Yeah. There's an end to building a church building, but there's not an end to building the church of Jesus. Yeah. Paul. Yeah, you can build the building without God's help, but you cannot build the church without, without God's help. And thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit. Any discussion at your table about that second question, how might we as believers build the church? Any just practical tips or practical experiences? Beth? We, we just talked about that it's not us, it's God's job to do that. That's right. We're, we, we just plant That's right. We just obey the voice right then. I might be on the airplane and God may tell me to engage in a conversation with someone beside me, or I might be on an airplane and God doesn't tell me that. And I do have to be attuned to his voice and, and just simply obey his voice. Yeah, Alex. We right. Yeah, right. How do we do both? How do we disciple well the people inside our church, but also have a focus on the people outside of the church? Yeah. Um, yeah. John had a really great observation that was uh, how they're similar, um, mm -hmm. that maintenance is actually the <laughs> most expensive part of a building. You know, you yes. can build the building, but then you have to Maintenance is the most expensive part, yes. And maintenance, like you could think of discipleship as maintenance. For yeah. The, for the body. Oh, I like that. Discipleship is the maintenance uh, with, with the people that we're helping them grow into the Christian community. Very good. Very good. Also, um, you know, a building, you know, it, people have to come to the building. But when the church is a people, everywhere we go, everywhere we go, we are a witness to Jesus. The Spirit is shining through us wherever we go. Very good. Very nice job. 
Okay, let's move on to restoration. Um, so what has been restored at this point? Well, there's some restoration to Jerusalem at this point. The temple isn't as glorious as Solomon's temple, but it has been rebuilt. The people are back in the promised land. They have a priest and a leader, so they can now continue their faith practices and continue to rebuild the city. But God is not dwelling in the completed temple. In fact, he won't dwell with humanity for 500 more years. And the next time that God dwells with mankind is when he comes himself in the person of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. Just curious, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Because that's where God's glory rests on the mercy seat. Where's, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Indiana Jones. Um, well, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's, it's, it's MIA. Um, now, there are rumors that it's in Ethiopia. Have y'all ever heard those rumors? It's in Ethi- is that what she said, John? It's in Ethiopia in the city of Aksum. Um, but there's been no evidence of that. So we really don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, so we have some restoration now. At that point in history, we experience a greater fulfillment of restoration with the work of Christ and then full restoration when Christ comes again. And the book of Zechariah was very fascinating, wasn't it? It had so much prophecy on the hope of the restoration. Um, And Zechariah is prophesying about something bigger than just rebuilding the temple. We read about hope for a new Jerusalem and encouragement to stay faithful in the waiting. Let's see. Will someone read this from Zechariah 2, 10 to 12? Carl, will you read this? I want to call your attention to the mention of the nations because we can't forget that part of the restoration is that all nations will be blessed through Christ, right? We haven't talked a ton about prophecy um, this course, so I do want to talk a little bit about prophecy tonight. Um, the The genre of prophecy, it's history written in advance, So if the prophecy doesn't come to pass, then the prophet is not a true prophet. And prophecies of doom are meant as warnings to move people to repent. And when they do, the prophecy changes. What comes to your mind uh, when you think when you think about that? Jonah. Jonah. That's kind of the kind of the thing that comes to our mind when we think about how a prophecy might change. Um, A prophecy doesn't necessarily relate to one and only one historical event. It It's classified as fulfilled or not fulfilled, and God's revelation is progressive. And I want to talk a little bit about the three peaks of prophetic fulfillment. Have you ever heard of the three peaks of prophetic fulfillment? I had never heard of that. I was reading this book called Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkins. And this is from the book. It's on page 302. Um, So one of the mistakes that can be made in interpreting prophecy is in the expectation of its fulfillment being seen in only one moment in history. And that interpretation doesn't take into consideration the progressive revelation of God. So each prophecy should be read in terms of three cumulative peaks of fulfillment, and each peak is higher than the one before. So here are the three peaks. So the first peak is the fulfillment in the biblical history of Israel. 
The second peak is a greater fulfillment in the incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the third peak is the ultimate fulfillment in Christ's second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. So, um, yeah, absolutely. The first peak is the fulfillment in the biblical history of Israel. The second peak is a greater fulfillment in the incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the third peak, the ultimate fulfillment in Christ's second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. And another thing about uh, prophecy is that the Bible's authenticity as God's word is supported by its fulfilled prophecy. Do you think um, if the religious leaders in the New Testament had a better um, interpreted prophecy better, would they have recognized Jesus? That's a good, good question to think about. If they had understand, understood prophecy better and known how to interpret it better, would they have recognized Jesus? And I would challenge us, do we know the scripture, the prophecy in the New Testament well enough to know uh, what we need to know about Jesus' second coming? Okay, I'm going to give you an example of this um, in David, in the life of David. So 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, it says, and this is the first peak, okay? For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. So that's the first peak because it's fulfilled in his son, Solomon. Solomon builds God a house, okay? The second peak, here's the second peak, John 2, 19 to 21, it says, all right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. So the second peak has a greater fulfillment in that a descendant from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, will build a temple more permanent than Solomon's. Okay, now the third peak. This is when we see complete fulfillment in the consummation of the new heaven and earth. Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become, become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So those are the three peaks of prophetic fulfillment. And I want you to go to our next um, table exercise, and I want you to keep this in mind. We're going to look at some of the prophecy from Zechariah. It says table exercise number three on your guide. Um, but I'm going to give you, we're not going to take a ton of time. Let's take about seven minutes to read these and just to talk about these prophecy that we see, this prophecy that we see in Zechariah. And then the last question is, how intentional is Jesus and what does this tell about his identity? Oh, it's number two on your page. Sorry. I mixed everything up. Sorry about that. And by the way, this is from your homework. These are questions from your homework, so you can look at your homework for the answers. Okay. Was that long enough? Okay, We're, we are closing out the evening. We're closing out the evening. <clears throat> Would anybody like to share anything significant from your table from that discussion? It's okay if, it's okay if we don't, but I want to give that an opportunity. If there's something you think the whole... A group would benefit from. That's one of the things I like about the way we're doing Academy is that we can, there's so much collective wisdom. So I love it when we have a table exercise and then we get to share with each other and hear what, what is discovered at other tables. So I do always want to give that opportunity. Okay. 
Um, I want to close with reading um, a passage from Zechariah because it's such a beautiful passage of hope. And, you know, he wrote this to the Israelites and they needed hope. The Israelites have this disease. We have it too. It's, it's sin. And they, they need a permanent solution, right? They need, they need the Messiah to come. They need the permanent solution. And we're so grateful that we live in the time after the work of Christ. Um, we still need hope too, of course. But I want to read from Zechariah chapter 8. Verses 1 to 8. Sorry, this is taking me a while. Okay. Then another message came to me from the Lord of heaven's armies. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. And now the Lord says, I am returning to Mount Zion and I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of heaven's armies will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Once again, old men and women will walk Jerusalem streets and their canes with their canes and will sit together in the city square and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls at play this is what the lord of heaven's armies says all this may seem impossible to you now a small remnant of god's people but is it impossible for me says the lord of heaven's armies this is what the lord of heaven's armies says you can be sure that i will rescue my people from the east and from the west, I will bring them home again to live safely in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and just toward them as their God. Such a beautiful passage of hope. Let's review our bottom line again. The return of the exiles to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple lead God's people to a place of readiness for Christ and the restoration that will come through him. And if you look in your Bible, um, if I turn to Zechariah, where we currently are, and then I, I go to Matthew, this is, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. Now we know there's a 400-year period of silence in here. But this is, we've come a long way. Look how far, look how far this class has, has come. Good job. Great job. But yes, I thought, I just, as I was looking, I was like, wow, it's amazing. Um, so I have one last little, oh, and don't forget our responsibility. Don't forget the mission that we're on to build God's church. Okay. Just want to bring that up again. And then I was, when I was reading that book, Biblical Critical Theory, it had this question at the end of the chapter, and I loved it so much. And I think I'm so clever to, to reuse it. I'm just like, I have been like waiting the whole evening to pull this question out. I can't even tell you how excited I am about this question. All right. And you have 30 seconds. To, to, to answer this question with, uh, in your notebook, just individually reflecting. You have 30 seconds. Let me get my timer ready. If your memory of this whole lesson was wiped out in 30 seconds time, but you can keep one thought from it, what would you choose to keep and why? Go. Five, four three, two, one. All right, your memory is now wiped out. What's the one thing that you chose to remember from this lesson? Liam? Uh, that God is gracious even when the people are unfaithful. God is gracious even when the people are unfaithful. Amen. Yeah, the three peaks of prophetic fulfillment. I, I really enjoyed learning about that too. I'm glad you did. 
Jesus is coming. Yep, yep. Choose to be faithful in the waiting. Very good. Amen. Betty? Not to be too focused on building my house, but, but on God. Seek first his kingdom, right? Very good. That's a great takeaway. Kelly? God loves us more than we can imagine. Mm-hmm. He constantly pursues us, doesn't he? Jeff? God restores, rebuilds, and redeems. Yep. We the people build the kingdom. We the people build the kingdom. God's heart is to dwell with his people. Very good. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we've learned a lot. We've studied a lot. And we've seen the story of the Bible unfold in a story format that we could tell the story. But there's lots of stories in the Bible. This curriculum did not cover every story. No, it's not a survey for sure. We know lots of stories. Mm-hmm. But, it, mm-hmm. but it did cover the big picture of the story of the Bible. That's right. Yeah. And we covered all that. We did. We covered the whole... Um, the whole like big perspective of redemptive history through the Old Testament. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you for your faithfulness. Okay, well, I'll close this in prayer. Remember that we will not meet for the next two Wednesday nights, but we will see you again on April 19th with Bob Schindler. Father, we do thank you so much. Um, that you pursue us, that you love us, that you redeem us, Lord, and that there's an even greater fulfillment of restoration awaiting us, Lord. We are so grateful for that, for that time when we, when we, along with all the nations, will be together as your church forever. Um, thank you again, Lord. Um, keep working in our hearts. Keep drawing us close to you. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.